bit of oh, lively music, a bit of, I'm not sure if that's cheerful music, but it's certainly got an air of tension. That is the theme to kick ass, and indeed it is the theme of the Fuzzy Logic Science Show, which is where you are right now today on 2XX. And our theme is, I'm afraid, a dur one extinction and if you've seen around Canberra recently a little bird a little sort of curved beak and a sort of forlorn look on its face that bird would be a dodo and uh, our guest today uh, Phil Hall from the National Dinosaur Museum I think he might know something about the appearance of the dodo Phil what is it well the one in Canberra I definitely know I've been carrying it around all the the national capital locations like um Parliament House and things like that, getting photos of the dodo in front of all these iconic uh, locations uh, to, to help um, promote our extinction event at the National Dinosaur Museum this, this school holiday. And of course, the uh, the dodo is iconic. And good morning to you too, Eleanor. Hi, Ellen. Rod. And uh, we're not going to go extinct today here on... God, I hope not. <laughs> on Fuzzy Little Not. An extinction l- event at the Dinosaur Museum sounds like, like there's going to be an asteroid hitting it or I something. I was going to say, never say never. That's, <laughs> that's what you have to learn when you look into extinction. <laughs> well, yeah, okay, so what is going on at the National Dinosaur Museum, Phil? Uh, so uh, we wanted to um, uh, promote like a lot of the natural history that we have in the museum, and extinction is one of those great buzzwords where you know you just have to read the word and you know exactly what we're talking about. So uh, uh, it looks really good on media releases and things like that, and so uh, uh, visitors can come in and take our, our, our extinction challenge where kids can run around the museum and answer a bunch of questions and, and uh, try and find all the information about extinction events that have happened throughout history uh, extinction the, the word as you suggest has a real ring to it doesn't it i mean what does an extinction actually mean <laughs> that's well, a, just a small question to, to start you off there phil <laughs> there's probably two ways you can look at it and an extinction is maybe on a, an individual species for instance you know we're currently worried about pandas because you know the pandas there's so few pandas left in the world that the panda very has has a very good chance of going extinct without our help so that's an individual species and then you have mass extinction events like what people think happened at the end with the dinosaurs where a big asteroid has come in 66 million years ago and hit the earth and just smashed all the dinosaurs and wiped them out where when today we realize it's not quite true but uh, you know a lot of animals died in that in that one event yeah we, we might get into the big extinction events later in the program but the analogy that strikes me is like imagine you're flying in an airplane and the crew go, you know what, that seat, we don't need that seat, we'll just open the door and chuck it out the window. Uh, that bolt, nah, don't need that bolt, that wire, chuck the wire out. Uh, what's this little scene with? Oh, I don't know. Chuck it out. No, it's extinct, it's gone. How long can you go on doing that kind of stuff before the plane falls out of the sky? Uh, these plants and these animals and, dare I say, even little things like fungi and so on, they're all part of the big complicated system we call life and it's part of our home isn't it uh, do you see it in such big terms phil or or, or do you think the well well some individual things may not affect their environment that much like you know one small species of kangaroo rat or something may not have a massive impact on their environment whereas if you took away say the cassowary the cassowary is a seed like it distributes all the the seeds from all the the um tropical fruits and so if you take the cassowary away suddenly 
that whole ecosystem is in a lot of trouble because those those uh, plants have evolved to have their seeds dispersed by something that eats them, and there's no longer anything there that can eat those seeds. And uh, suddenly, yeah. huge tracts of rainforest are in big trouble. Well, in my aeroplane metaphor, you know, you could be chucking a seat out the window. The plane's still going to fly, isn't it? But there's that critical assembly somewhere. You know, it might be the uh, the critical oh, point. Yeah, the the critical point. There's there's a, a term for a key species. Uh, uh, a keystone a keystone species species yeah. for instance plankton would probably be one of those yeah yeah um, I've heard it mentioned that perhaps whales are an example of a keystone species because they redistribute nutrients through the uh, the uh, ocean across the, I'm not sure about that maybe we'll get an expert well, yeah I'm not 100% on, uh, sure on whales but whales eat a lot of whales eat a lot of plankton a lot of plankton you know and then they they travel a long distance so perhaps they're um uh, what they excrete is also re- releasing nutrients in certain areas that might need them because the, the oceans are quite bereft of a lot of nutrients. Well, I think our answer to say that we don't know is actually pretty significant. I mean, we're neither of us are experts in whales, right, or this particular question, but when you take something out, we don't really know what impact that will be. Uh, we can't tell. I mean, so you mentioned, uh, what was this, the animal? You said, oh, the kangaroo rat? Yeah. You said the kangaroo rat. Well, we don't think it's a, a keystone species, but who, who knows? Maybe. That's absolutely true. You don't know until it's gone when then you suddenly start realising the snakes that fed off the kangaroo rat suddenly have nothing else to eat or, you know, the eagles or the, you know, whatever else might be interacting with the kangaroo rat suddenly don't have that interaction anymore. Because it's part of a complicated interacting system where each of the parts do something maybe small, maybe large, but we're never really sure exactly... Exactly Small cogs in a big machine. Yeah, yeah. And take one cog away, that machine doesn't work anymore. Yeah. Well... <laughs> like a plane. <laughs> <laughs> but even scarier, I think, is when you start taking out lots of cogs at once, and that's sort of what those mass extinction events are all about, when you, you lose sort of upwards of 75% of the biodiversity in, in one hit or you know over quite a long period of time in terms of how we perceive time but geologically quite quickly and biodiversity just won't recover on the on the time scales that we're interested in yeah let's talk about biodiversity a bit more in a moment but um, Eleanor there's a term now that that scientists are seriously starting to use for this lots of cogs as you put it yeah the, the mass extinctions or the, yeah, the an- or um, our, our upcoming mass extinction, uh, the Holocene The event. Anthropocene. Oh, is it? Which terminates the Holocene. So we've been in the Holocene and now they're seriously talking about a new geological era called the Anthropocene because we have messed with the planet so much. Uh, and, and this theme, I think, will come right through this whole program today where humans have affected stuff. Mm. A lot of stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Including the dodo. <laughs> Including the well, dodo. To well, a point. <laughs> let's talk about biodiversity because we tend to throw the term around a bit and we've kind of alluded to it a little bit already uh, in terms of you know the, the web of life being a complicated interacting system. Um, is say you've got uh, diversity means choices it means you've got multiple strands multiple ways of, of of keeping a system going and the more you cut down those choices the more you reduce those options so take for example seed crops 
mm. the, the things like what do we have for breakfast you know I some oats and some other grains and so on but if we go to vast monocultures then there's only one one only one single point of failure that's that's what I'm grasping for a good example of that is the banana so yes. we're, we're very close to losing the banana completely yeah. because uh, there used to be two. Like if um, uh, one of the guys who works at the Dinosaur Museum, Mitchell, he, he pointed this out, is um, if you eat, ever eat a lolly banana, they don't taste like bananas taste. Lolly bananas taste like how bananas used to taste. Uh, and much better. Yeah, because there used to be a whole different strand of banana, that uh, eating banana. But there's a blight that's been attacking the bananas for the last, you know, couple of decades and it has completely wiped out the banana that the lolly banana is based on and we're now left with really one type of eating banana and the blight has started has evolved to the point that it's starting to affect it so we are very close in the next generation perhaps there will be no such thing as a banana or the, the banana as we know it that's uh, that's pretty hot I, I remember researching this for another fuzzy and bananas got no sex I think it was, it was the way we summed it up mm. uh, because they're all basically um, they don't reproduce through seeds they're all cuttings or um, they're all asexual reproduction so they're all one genotype that's 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 as I as I recall it. N not such an expert on bananas. <laughs> is there a dinosaur banana in there? <laughs> but, um, but there are lots of animals like that, and I think that is the problem: is that they've all they're, they're all based on really the the, the one kind of stem group, and there is no like you need a lot of diversification because if something appears in your uh, environment that affects things like a new disease if there's a lot of diversity somewhere in that diversity might be the group that don't get affected by that disease that's exactly they'll pass yeah. on whereas mm. the banana they're all based on the one kind of genotype and anything that affects one is going to affect a lot that's right and i think we did a, a fuzzy on why there is such a thing as sex apart from the fact that it's fun <laughs> uh was that um it gives you this diversity it's a way of generating possibilities yeah you're shuffling together existing sets of DNA and, and in, in the redundancies and little mutations that accumulate, you, you develop that diversity. And so, I mean, it's, it's the force that drives evolution. Um, the, the fact that we can incorporate new diversity and things that are well suited to the niches available to them will continue to flourish and things that aren't, they'll die off. Um, and we've kind of put a stopper on banana evolution by just, you know, keeping this one, um, the one, strain. one variety. Yeah. And, and that's really the only choice that we have by the sounds of it and they're all going to die off and, and not just bananas either like the cheetah the cheetah is, has stemmed from such a small group of surviving cheetahs that um you can take skin grafts off one cheetah and take it to any other cheetah in the world and graft it onto its back and it will perfectly accept that there will be no response because they're that genetically close that the the cheetah's system just recognizes it as itself so cheetahs are just a bit like the banana there there's not a huge um so that that lack of diversity is a lack of stability or it's a high risk that something will go wrong because when it does go wrong every you've chance you've got no fallback mm. yep. yeah so this banana you mentioned i'm curious now <laughs> did you call it the lolly banana well if you ever had a lolly banana 
Yeah, what's the, what's the lolly banana? Oh, yeah, like the a, little yellow lolly bananas that you buy in a packet. Oh, at the a little shops. Allen's. Like Allen's lolly bananas. Yeah. Oh. Sorry, yeah. that's what I meant. Like you lolly banana bananas. flavoring. And, <laughs> oh. And if you have a milkshake or something, banana flavored, and it kind of it's that sickly sweet sort of over the top yeah. banana ish idea, but it's not it's not the same taste as a yellow banana that you peel out of the fruit bowl. Okay, this is Rod uh, discovering the plot. <laughs> I think I just saw the light bulb go on. <laughs> I, I thought you were talking about a, there was another oh, like a species of banana called the lolly banana. <laughs> yeah, that's, that was, that's what I thought you the, were, were the saying. The Cavendish. Is that the one we've Cavendish. still got or is that the one yeah, we've I lost? Think, I, I'm, I'm not sure, but yeah. I definitely know the name Cavendish. Yeah. Yes. It's, it, is, it is the Cavendish, yeah. I, I thought you were suggesting there was a wild breed that does... <laughs> Perhaps it was called the lolly banana back then. Yeah, right on. Okay, so here on Fuzzy Logic, we're talking extinction and other cheerful things to kick off 2016 with Phil Hall from the National Dinosaur Museum, uh, Eleanor, and me. My name is Rod. And uh, so now, a couple of weeks ago, Phil, you wrote us a column for our Ask Fuzzy in Fairfax, and it was about the dodo. The sweet dodo. The sweet dodo? Not really. (laughs) Carrying it around, (laughs) it was a bloody heavy dodo. Now, the, the the popular story about the dodo is that uh, the sailors, the, the, the first settler just came and bonked this thing on the head and ate it. But it was a bit more complicated than that, a little bit more to the story. Well, the problem was, um, like, the, the dodo also almost became an animal of myth because they were only, like, when after humans first found them, they were only around for about 50 years before they were extinct. So... This is in the 1600s, 1500s, 1600s. So when naturalists in the 17th century, in the 18th century, went to the island to find this this wonderful animal that they've been told about, they couldn't find them and they found no evidence of them. So they thought the sailors and things that had come before had just been drunk and just imagined this mythological creature the way they've imagined so many mythological creatures. So it's really taken basically paleontology to go out there. Like there were very few remains kept. So they've gone out there and they found locations where a lot of the bones are in the ground and they've been going through these bones and things and they don't see a lot of human effect on them they can see things like perhaps rats and pigs and dogs that the humans did release on the island that was the major cause of their extinction because uh, and we see that all the time you know you introduce rats and, and pigs to an environment they can devastate it very quickly yeah uh, yeah so do they they nested on the ground yeah, they because they, yeah, they, they weren't flightless. flying. They weren't a flying bird. They were so big. They they, they they were the world's biggest pigeon. They were a species of pigeon, and uh, their closest relative, I think, is the Nicobar pigeon, which is on an island nearby. Um, so yeah, they're a big pigeon that on this island they had no natural predators, so they just got rid of the the need to fly, and so that yeah, they're basically a, a ground based bird. So the the, the the Nicobar pigeon still exists. Yeah, yeah, it's still alive today. I think it's it's all across, like from India all the way to to southern right. Africa on those islands. It, does does it fly? It does fly. It's not it's not a giant pigeon, right. uh, which was a while. It took DNA to to, to really recognise the the similarities between them. Um, for a long time, there was a different type of pigeon, which I can't so you you were saying in the article or, or through email that the the popular picture of a dodo was this big fat thing that just sort of wobbled around, but actually it was it was probably bit leaner are there actually uh stuffed specimens remaining or any skins or is it just bones not really there's like the the best thing we've got is one mummified leg and a, a stuffed head and everything else is kind of um drawn from either dodos that had possibly been brought back from uh the the indian ocean at the time or 
uh, just people's imaginations of what a dodo looked like just from descriptions of the sailors who came back. Um, so the, the, the image we have as the dodo actually comes from uh, one, Alice in Wonderland because in Alice in Wonderland, like, the dodo had been forgotten about and nobody really cared about the dodo at all. And then when Alice in Wonderland came out, uh, Alice meets one of the dodos and there's a nice picture in the book of Alice meeting this dodo and it's the very image of what we think a dodo looks like today. So it's slightly cartoony. Very cartoony, very, like, overstuffed and plumped and a bit Mickey Mouse, Disney looking, like a very cartoon, it's a cartoon image of what a dodo probably looked like. Uh, yeah. No, it's just it's crazy to think that you know we could have an entire image of a species from from a kids book. Well, you know, arguably a kids book illustration. Um, yeah, and it's just because um, uh, uh, the author lived near the the Oxford University, so he used to go in, and they did used to have a skeleton and a bit of a, a skin of the dodo at the Oxford Natural History Museum. But one day, somebody just looked at it and went, "Well, that's dusty and it's a bit damaged and stuff," and just threw it out. <laughs> Goodness. Literally the only full skin and skeleton wow. gone. <laughs> yeah, do you kind of uh, forlornly imagine what it would be like to actually go and see one of these things? Do, I mean, you know, when uh, if, if somebody took the Mona Lisa right and stuck it on a campfire, uh, you know, we would say that was a tragedy, that the thing was lost and gone forever. Would you know, do you, do you get this sort of feeling that it's like really sad that what we've really lost something? It's not just the functional role that this thing plays in the uh, our ecology. The dodo, a little bit, because it's you know it'd just be interesting to see a dodo. But for an Australian, it's the thylacine, the Tasmanian mm. tiger, like a a very large carnivorous. Uh, marsupial that would have been amazing to have seen uh, one of the Tasmanian tigers still running around and I touched one uh, re- uh, as in one of the skins or yeah yeah no, not a live one <laughs> <laughs> no and they're no. not that old right <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I think that might be a cute go to the song break. <laughs> while I discipline our uh, guest here, Eleanor, and, uh, and, and keeping put the dodo with, down. <laughs> keep keeping with the theme, you know. Well, it's really quite a sad theme. Uh, uh, this one is called "On the Evening Train," and you'll notice it has the line "He's gone forever." Johnny Cash here on Two Double X. A bit of cheerful music there on Fuzzy Logic to lighten your day. Here we're talking about extinction and with our guest Phil Hall from the National Dinosaur Museum and Eleanor and me, Rod. Now, just before the song... <laughs> cheerful wasn't it hey it was very uh, feeling so happy at the moment (laughs) (laughs) yeah sorry about that uh we were talking about the dodo now the story that you've got coming up next week is the passenger pigeon and this one is a bit more recent and we know a bit more about the passenger pigeon what was it phil the passenger pigeon was a, a species probably the world's most populous bird um it's estimated when uh, uh, you know Europeans arrived in North America, there was hundreds of millions of these birds living in North America at the time. Um, they were just everywhere, and they were in massive flocks. And over the next couple of hundred years, humanity just systematically wiped out this bird. Never has a species come under such pressure as the passenger pigeon did from human hands. It was just destroyed. And, and, and it's kind of it's emblematic, isn't it, of so, in so many ways, but that an animal of such incredible abundance that can suddenly just crash the population can go from huge to to zero 
basically. Do we know why it was that happened? Well, the problem is it died out before real science was done on the bird, but the, our best estimate is that it was um, a gregarious breeder. It had to be in large flocks to breed, um, and the second that those flocks fell under a certain number, the birds just stopped breeding. So even... Even though there'd be 100 million birds in one single flock flying above, that could possibly have been the last generation of that specific flock because even that number was too too small for them to, to breed. They just, for some reason, maybe it was the noise. They just needed all that pigeon cooing or something around them that got them in the mood or whatever it was. But, yeah, it's we didn't wipe them all out. We wiped out enough that they just stopped breeding. They got to a critical threshold and then, and then just... Yeah, and we just didn't know what it was. Um, Another great example of that in Australia is the orange ruffy, which um, was a fish that, you know, Australia doesn't really have a great fishery because uh, fish feed off nutrients that wash off the continent. And Australia's, the continent of Australia has been bleached of most of its nutrients. It's too old. And so there's very few nutrients flowing off of Australia. And so our fisheries have never been great. But then suddenly they found the orange ruffy between Australia and New Zealand. Millions of them, hundreds of millions of these fish. And so they just started going out harvesting and going, woohoo, we've got all these lovely fish. The problem is nobody had actually studied the orange ruffy. And the orange ruffy lives for a couple of hundred years. Wow. And it only breeds once in that entire time because it lives in such new nutrient-poor waters. And so we almost wiped it out because they just didn't breed back their numbers, and they're only just starting to, to come back now. But we almost wiped them out just through putting yeah, them on our plates. Uh, I'm, I'm a bit precious about these things. I refuse to eat something that's older than I am. <laughs> I, I don't eat fish. I don't eat fish, period. If you don't farm it, you don't eat it. And we don't really farm fish, you know. Some fish they claim to be farmed, but it's not really farmed. It's wild fish caught and then penned and fattened up and then then collected. Yeah. That's, that's I not a farm fish. I think the, the topic of the sources of food and what we can eat and what we shouldn't eat. So I don't eat any land animals. <laughs> but I do eat fish. And and see, I only eat fish when I'm near the ocean because I feel like that's that's allowed. It's a, <laughs> it's something local, yeah. Um, yeah, that's that's a whole other topic, yeah. and it's a complicated. We've already got a divide right here. <laughs> yeah, it, it, but it's worth doing a show on that, I think, because it, it is a really important one. And there are uh, there's a website you can go to to see which fish. Uh, sustainably harvested and which ones aren't and so on but the orange ruffy yeah definitely not uh, let's just go back to the passenger pigeon Sorry. because uh, <laughs> um, the way that people exterminated these things was it's quite a story isn't it I mean what the sort of things that people did along the way well we're talking about when uh, like the the North American colonies so um the 13 American colonies, they got rid of the British and they became the United States. And so they needed, there was a lot of poor people living there and they needed a steady supply of food. And the pigeons, there were billions, they were just, they were everywhere. So they were a great source of food. And um, people just going out and they were creating ingenious ways of killing these. They, they had like massive nets and they'd scare the, the flock into the net and just club them. Um, they started burning down whole forests while they were ne- nesting. And then they'd just go through and collect all the bodies after the the bushfire. Um, One problem is that they probably... 
uh, like the, the Native American Indians had been eating the pigeon for years, but they would never take juvenile birds and they would never go near the nests because they didn't want to disturb the birds. They knew that the birds would probably leave and they wouldn't come back next year. They'd look for new nesting grounds if they were disturbed too much. So they'd only try and hunt um, the adult birds. And so it was sustainably keeping the, the population going where you know, the North American Europeans, when they showed up, didn't care and they you know nesting birds take all them and they just completely disrupted the life cycle of the pigeon i think that ties back really nicely to i mean i know we were sort of off topic with that whole eating sustainably thing but but i mean when you when you think about the fact that people who live very close to the land they understand the life cycles of these things they understand all right we're going to leave the juveniles we're going to only take sort of lone adults so as to not disrupt our food source for the future there's sort of this this inherent planning for the future and i think we've really in losing connection to the land um we've we've lost that sort of sense of we shouldn't take all of these animals at once we should kind of ration ourselves and that's one of the things that drives these mass extinctions yes and you've touched on a topic that i think is a really big topic and one i feel very strongly about and um hesitate to use the um the the unacceptable term native or or savages or primitive people but uh, when western people came to australia we brought with us that kind of ethos that you know bring out the heavy duty mechanized approach to harvesting and so on and the aborigines were here for like 40 50 who knows thousand years a long time and they managed to do something that we cannot do or we have not done. They lived within the means, within the bounds of their environment, because if they didn't, they, they starved. Mm. But that's not to say they had no effect. And I could see Phil's thinking... <laughs> yeah, I'm putting on my boxing gloves. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and I'm pretty sure, and I've been reading, uh, to prepare for today, I was reading a little bit of Tim Flannery's book, The Future Eaters. I'll talk a bit more about that later. But I would guess that what happened is that they got here, found abundance, that they did what humans do when they go to a new place. They gorged. Hmm. And then they probably starved. And, and Phil, we, I'm feel you're going to want to talk about the megafauna, perhaps. That's always, yeah, that's a good but, signpost. Yeah, that's a signpost. We'll come, come on to that one. Um, that's a, a, a throw for you. But um, I, I think the whole theme of how people manage to live. Now, there's a really good book that my sister gave me years ago, and it's called My Crowded Solitude. And it's about this guy in 1910 or thereabouts, and he goes to set up a coconut plantation on Cape York Peninsula. And, uh, and he finds the local Aborigines there, and you know, they're a fairly amicable bunch. I think they're used to the um, islanders coming and going, so they're used to other people visiting. Mm. And he says, oh, I'm going to set up a coconut plantation. Can you help me clear away the trees? I went, oh, yeah, all right, okay. So they do that, and then, okay, we're going to start planting the coconuts. So, yeah, they do that. And then after about a month, two months, or three months, or whatever it was, they just sort of went, they just went. Hmm. And he's going, uh, excuse me, what part of employer-employee relationship do you not understand? And they could have turned around and said to him, well, what part of sustainable development do you not understand? We've been here, we've been eating the local fish, the local produce, whatever, and we move on after about two or three months because we know, like you're saying, Eleanor, hmm. that if we eat it out, it'll be gone and then we starve. So they've they learnt to live within that regime. 
but that's not to say when they first got here, Phil, this is for you now. <laughs> Pull out the gloves and, and, and... Well, just one thing I was going to say on, on exactly that location is there was an interesting thing that happened with Cook when Cook discovered the... Um, Great Barrier Reef, and he didn't discover it, he just ran into it. Um, <laughs> so they, they were stuck there for weeks and weeks and weeks, um, off now, you know, I think it's called Endeavour Cove, and they were collecting turtles, and they'd, they'd, the big sea turtles would come in and they'd actually pin them, tie them to the beach, and because they knew they'd just be able to survive for a long time. And Aborigines kept snuck, sneaking onto the, the beaches and cutting them free and trying to get the, the turtles loose. So perhaps they were thinking, you know, you can't be taking all these turtles. Like, that's too many. Like, we need, you know, like, uh, if you take all of them, it's going to destroy the, the, that part of the ecosystem, mm. perhaps. Or perhaps they were just going, if we get rid of their food, these white guys might go Leave. away. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, there might have been something there because they were very, very determined to free all the turtles that the, the, the European sailors had been collecting. Oh, it's um, <laughs> it, well, we, we, it's something we have got to learn, and, and either we will do it ourselves or nature will do it for us. And some fisheries do. Like uh, there's a lot of the crab and um, lobster fisheries where they deliberately do not take breeding females. Now they you know they they sex the, their catch and throw the mm. the breeders back because they know if they keep taking everything there's not going to be anything left so little little steps are, well, are we, starting we, to come in I, can't, I shouldn't be completely negative because we, we do do things and like you've mentioned the orange ruffy and so yes we have modified our fishing practices to take into account what, what a sustainable catch is and so it's not all doom and we do have the ability to, to figure it out I mean we're supposedly the smart ape <laughs> supposedly <laughs> supposedly the smart ape yeah <laughs> but uh, I don't know I think we might break to a bit more Johnny Cash and uh, God's gonna cut you down and a bit more Johnny Cash there to lighten your day here on Fuzzy Logic 2XX and you can get us online just streaming through the 2XX website and you can get us on podcast on Fuzzy Logic on 2XX.podbean.com and of course you'll be able to hear later on Phil Hoare and Eleanor and myself Rod and Extinction now uh, we were talking about the passenger pigeon and I uh, was reading Tim Flannery's book The Future Eaters and uh, he tells a bit of the sad story of the moa and uh, they were around 600 years ago and there were a few varieties and they would weigh somewhere between 20 and 250 kilograms and then about one to two to one, one 1200 years ago uh, humans arrived in the New Zealand and the islands thereabouts I think there were three species uh, on a place called Kapo. I can't. Sorry, my <laughs> pronunciation is terrible. Kapo Kanui, somewhere on the North Island. Anyway, there were three species, and they've been doing diggings around the old sites, archaeological diggings, and they found huge piles of these things, lots of waste, cooked and uncooked bones, and as much of them as a third of them weren't used. So, what they had was a little bit in a parallel to the uh, passenger pigeon. There was things in abundance and they just kind of gorged they went nuts eating these things 
Yeah, what you were saying before, the gluttony of finding a, a new and ready, readily available food source. And there was like everyone today, do you like the dark meat on a chicken? Do you like the white meat on a chicken? Obviously, the Maoris had a specific part of the mower that was the tastiest. And uh, they, they were so plentiful and so easy to catch because they had no fear of humans. They'd never been humans on the island before. So you could literally walk up and just club one in the head. And um, there was very specific parts of the bird that they liked to eat and they just ignored the rest. Ah, okay. And no doubt that also supported a burgeoning human population at the same time. Uh, What I haven't read about, though, is what happened to the human population in parallel with this story. So they ate the the moa and then... Was the was the islands were the islands able to support the, the same number of people, or did, did the human population must have? Not terribly sure if they suffered after that, but a lot of the other species did. Um, not only was uh, New Zealand had the, the tallest bird, the moa, it also had the world's largest eagle, which was uh, the Hast's eagle, and this was this giant bird that was used to hunting moas. And we've actually found moa bones with eagle claws in them in certain locations where they just swoop down and hit them in a certain part of the neck and break their neck and this giant eagle was feasting off these giant birds and so there is no such thing as a harsh eagle anymore and we think what happened was these giant eagles were used to hunting large two-legged animals and the the maori took out all the mowers and so these large eagles started hunting the other large (laughs) two-legged animals around and very shortly there were no eagles left anymore so we think the maori uh, also wiped out the stellas uh, the the uh, stella uh, not stellas the um the the harst eagle this giant eagle species so we lost two very large, amazing birds. So th- th- this is another example of the interrelationship of forms of life that, that often we, we don't notice until it's until after it's happened. Um, one thing is we, we tend to focus on the big animals and specifically the, the, the ones that are cuddly. So we're very concerned about koalas and rightly so. But uh, if there's some little ratty thing, some unattractive thing, it might be maybe it's even just a fungus. Uh, well, that's always the joke. If the panda looked like like the skinless mole rat, nobody'd care. <laughs> There'd be no money for the, to save the panda because it was ugly. Nobody'd worry about it. It's because it's cute and so everybody wants it, one. Yes, it's a very human centric way of preserving things. And I think if the environment movement has made a mistake, it's it's getting itself associated with locking up bushwalking areas for lentil-eating greenies. Mm. <laughs> it, it's kind of skewed it all to, you know, the, the privileged class who, you know, want to hug a tree and so on. But if your only concern was economics, if your only concern was a pragmatic thing, uh, just nothing more than that, you didn't have any aesthetic pleasure of the natural environment, we should save these things because we need them. And so you, you can have... Uh, an economy but you can't have an economy without an environment the the two are not different things and bizarrely what you just said is a trained response there was no such thing as the environment a couple of you know a century ago nobody looked at vistas and went well my isn't that pretty i want to go see that lovely mountain view or something like that 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 literally was trained into us like a small group of people started realizing wow this is pretty and and started painting these things and writing about them and talking about them and actually developed an interest in us we didn't care humanity did not care at all about such things and that's where national parks have come out of you know like national parks the first national park was created by teddy roosevelt and it's because like he was the one guy who went 
I've got to save this place because if I don't save it, nobody's going to save it. And the bison were saved. All these animals were saved literally because of one guy and one guy who was the president who then kind of trained everyone else into, oh, yeah, this is something that we will miss when it's gone. We should try and save these things. They're, they are worthwhile. Well, let, let's, let's talk a little bit about solutions, about what we can do, rather than just leaving ourselves and everybody slashing their wrists and so on. What, what, what a bunch of doom and gloom. I'm going to minor, slip in a quick segue before we do that, uh, or a minor diversion because I can't help it, and that is uh, we focus on animals. We've talked about animals almost exclusively in this, but plants is something we've hardly mentioned. And there is uh, Katie told me about a plant that was around during Roman times, and I haven't had a chance to verify this, but it's called the the sylphium and it turned out to be a natural contraceptive and I don't know anything about the plant but I'll bring maybe I'll, I'll make up for it in the future fuzzy <laughs> logic uh, but it uh, they, they, they harvested it over harvested until it was gone which kind of suggests that it was difficult to propagate and they couldn't farm it uh, and so yeah it, it's an extinction caused by human exploitation. Well, it's also one of those examples that you say it might have been difficult to farm. It might just not have occurred to them to farm it. It, it might have been something that was, you know, just such a part of of life that, and I, I know for a fact that 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 particular plant was an incredibly effective contraceptive. It wasn't like it was sort of leader of the pack on par with what we've got today. Um, and it might just have never occurred to them that it could ever run out. Um, so it's that, that same thing you were saying before about a period of gorging and then suddenly realising they hadn't factored in, you know, for what if this runs out? Um, oh. So I, I, don't, I don't know anything about the agriculture associated with the syphilium, but, uh, but it, might, it might have been a case of no foresight. Okay, so Eleanor, that, that, that's a challenge for you and I to bring on a future fuzzy logic, the, the, that story a bit more about that one. Yeah, I think so. I think it's, it's, it's a good one. Uh, now let's, let's go back to uh, solutions. And um, you, we were talking about the orange roughy. Now our management of the orange roughy changed because we learnt something about them. So Basically their life cycle. We learned about that. So we used science. Oh, check the shirt I'm wearing. Look what I got for my Stand birthday. Stand back. I'm going to try science. Right. Here we go. That's, that can be our, uh, our, our happy <laughs> do, message. Do we need a safety shield? <laughs> you always need a safety shield. <laughs> um, but uh, we, we can do something about it, but we need the information and we need the will and we need, dare I say, the economic model that's going to allow it at the same time. So one thing that I want to look at in future is soil. And, uh, Eleanor, you remember we had uh, Major General Michael Jeffrey? Yeah, on the uh, Can we can Science Save Humanity that, podcast. You can find it on the, on the Podbean site. <laughs> That's a plug. Thank you. <laughs> thank, thank you, Eleanor. Uh, but uh, the harvesting of our soils is, is another topic. And I'm getting off the plot. <laughs> but um, well, Not really, because it all leads to extinction if we don't. Yeah. Well, well, Our it, extinction. It, it, well, it, it does. But what, what, I was, what I was thinking about there was, in fact, the economic model. So what's happening on the land now, and well, we're hopelessly off topic, but I can, there is a parallel. Uh, the economics of the situation drive us to exploit our soils. 
that's the parallel and the economics of the mower and of the passenger pigeon were to us to exploit it unless as you say Eleanor we we realize there's a way of doing it better we can plan mm. and we can um, harvest or we, we can crop or we can whatever in some way that makes the, the thing a sustainable resource rather think, than a one use yeah i think on a, on a large scale humans are just really bad at planning but but i think that the the thing is we kind of see ourselves through this moral prism we don't we don't accuse bacterium of not planning um because they eat all the sugar on an agar plate and then have no food left and die like that's just that's how life works you you take in as many resources as are physically available to you without thought of the future that's the most sort of basic way that these you know plants and animals propagate i mean the the fungus that's killing our bananas that's because it's found a huge source of energy in these bananas it's going to take out all of them and when there are no bananas left it's going to die as well so i think the difference with us being you know sentient is that we have to fight against that natural urge to expand to the maximum and start planning um and that's i think that's very counter to our nature you know, uh, taking uh, into I think account that's, that's brilliantly brilliantly put and, eleanor and the economics of it we can kind of see that in humanity today like the richest countries in the world are not having kids and that's the one thing the one hope we have for places like china and india and stuff where their populations have been booming for so long is we know that once people start getting rich they don't because they don't see their wealth and their 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 family's future in their children anymore as much you know there's not as large child mortality so they don't have to have 10 kids hoping three of them will get to adulthood they now know they can have two kids and two kids will only replace the two parents and so suddenly we hit a, a level that will not grow any yeah. further and that's happened in all European and countries. I, think, I believe actually the hot spot for human population growth is Africa and they're talking about the population doubling but uh, we've got Eleanor with us here so I would like to also add that it's not just the wealth but it's empowering the women, education and giving them reproductive control Yeah, that's well, a big issue, yeah uh, and uh, maybe if we could re... Uh, find that sophilium again and <laughs> sylphium and and start farming it but realistically it's it's little little things well you say little that things like contraception and access to education and things that are that are going to make huge differences in those sorts of communities because like phil said you know once once you've reached a certain point where your wealth is no longer in having you know as many offspring as possible to continue farming and and you know being the the labor uh then population should start to plateau we hope we yes. hope yes we're, we're we're paying a it's a race to finish almost isn't it yeah yeah um and um you know just because we're, we're discussing such light um <laughs> and fun topics uh i don't know if you know of professor frank fenner he's uh one of the virologists who was involved in um mixed mitosis to control rabbit populations and all sorts of things uh has the uh, forestry and environmental sciences school at anu named after him uh and a couple of years ago he predicted that humans will be extinct in 100 years uh which is very soon uh so i don't know what do you guys think about the likelihood of us going extinct i, I I've, I've thought about this eleanor i don't think we will go extinct if i'm to make a really 
bleak prediction. I think what will happen is that we will fritter away, we'll, we'll do our best around the edges, we'll save a koala here or there or maybe the orange roughy, but human greed and human nature, well, and you were saying nicely about just the... Just nature in general. Just nature will out and I don't think we're going to... I don't think we're going to do it in time. We And, and I think we'll end up with resource wars, uh, extremism. Uh, we're, we're going to see some pretty nasty times. But humans are remarkably adaptable. And I think that we will have... Uh, I think we will have some... Whatever remnants of civilization left, uh, we'll have a population... It will continue to boom, then then it'll peak, and then it'll it has to drop because we just cannot keep the number of bodies going that we have going right now. Mm. It'll decline drastically, but some some humans will remain, and uh, and who knows what happens after that. I was going to say, on a happy note, <laughs> <laughs> we technology and science are a saviour. And we can see that happening around us at the moment. Like, it's all doom and gloom until you start really looking at things. So for the last 20 years, we've been moaning about how we're destroying Australia. We're digging up all the iron. We're digging up everything, and we're shipping it overseas and things like that. Over the last couple of years, nobody wants our iron anymore. Nobody's really wanting our coal anymore because new technologies are starting to come in and making those resources unnecessary. And so the, the, the iron market has dropped completely and iron companies are starting to go bankrupt and they're starting to close down because there's just no more market for their iron. Mm. So there is a potential that new technologies and new science will calm a lot of these issues down. Like, uh, you know. well, well, well said. I, I think it is good to... We've we got to have a glimmer of hope because the worst, <laughs> thing, the worst thing we could do is just say we're screwed and, and just give up. We are the smart monkey, and we do find our way. Yeah. It just takes one smart monkey out of the six, six and a half, seven, eight billion of us. <laughs> that yeah. it just takes one to have that light bulb moment. Actually, the, the, the name of today's show is put beautifully by a friend of mine, Naughty Monkey. <laughs> <laughs> Na- I like that. Naughty monkeys. It, it, it does put it well. Well, we, we we do have hope. There are things, as you say, there are things we can do, with it, and we are doing things better. And uh, But we've got to really counter the anti-science movement because it is powerful and it is doing really bad shit. Uh, and you look at the Republican Party in the United States. We're talking a bunch of serious troglodytes here, and we have elements of them in Australia as well and all over the world. And it's that's the battle. That's the battle. We can do it if we put our minds to it. Well, this is scientists are you know quiet warriors. We we have no money. Um, no one no one wants to give us any funds to do anything. And and you know all the all the people I know, all my colleagues, we just sort of potter along, doing the best we can with what we've got. It's these these scientists are so passionate about improving things that they'll kind of keep dragging themselves through it, despite you know. And and hopefully, and I I genuinely believe that that culture is shifting and well, that we are going to be I, I was gonna, appreciated. I was going to say you guys are you now entering 
entering something that we in the paleontology field have been dealing with for centuries <laughs> because paleontology has been up against religion right from the word go yeah and it's something that we've had to fight and fight and and there's a thing in paleontology it's basically called uh the wall and there's bricks in that wall and we're building a wall and each idea and each piece of evidence is another brick and we're reducing the arguments that like people like creationists have to the few gaps in that hole that are left and they'll, they'll argue those gaps as much as they can and mm. all we have to do is come along and just put another brick in that wall close that gap and that that argument's gone forever and the, 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 it's slowly diminishing the the actual things that they can they can argue about so uh, in a lot of these other sciences like climatology it's this it's just the exact same thing well, the more I, bricks we put in that wall I, i've got absolutely no qualm about um putting one up against creationism or the anti-climate change the, the climate deniers as we call them whether we get into an anti-religion thing that's that's uh, another thing altogether i think but uh, in fact i'm going to miss science week this coming year because i'm going to be up in the kimberleys mm. uh, which are doing a personal trek but uh, a theme that i had thought had i been doing it <laughs> and Rod's looking at us as if to say, guys, organise yeah, this. Hint, hint. Yeah. No, that's all right. We'll, well do it. I can help. But anyway, uh, uh, that is uh, science and the truth, science and religion. And, and it's still an ongoing, I don't want to say a struggle or a debate, but uh, it's a d d evolving ideas, dare I say. Oh, quick thing that I just thought of. <laughs> uh, um we're about to wind up, but uh, there's a thing I've, I came across uh, when I had the internet last week. Uh, there's a researcher in ANU who's discovered that the ideas of the approach of creationists to the legal question in the United States, their approach has evolved. <laughs> and that's that's kind of what I was saying. Like they're, they're constantly having to adapt, and they don't realise what they're doing is exactly what they're arguing against. Well, yeah, and guess what? This guy's in Canberra, so uh, I'm I'm going to hunt him down <laughs> in a nice way, and uh, I'm going to try and get him onto fuzzy logic because this could be really fascinating conversation. Well, that that that's it for uh, extinction. Just a couple of last things before we wind up today, and I wanted to mention something I saw in the paper yesterday, and that was. Uh, uh, devices to control sharks to keep sharks away and uh, oh that's weird what people come up with uh, and um, have you seen these magnetic pillows that's supposed to solve you know cure your arthritis this thing's called um, a shark defense a plastic bracelet containing a magnet $149 I think people who develop these things should be always the first ones to test them out. <laughs> Put them in a tank with a, with, a, with, a, with, a, with a shark that hasn't been fed for a few weeks. And, and one uh, which I have tried to uh, research but I haven't got an answer to. I'm going to use this in my book, but I think in a future Ask Fuzzy. And that is... Um, uh, all those kangaroo whistle things you put on your bumper bars. Yeah, in front of your car. And, and your bull bars. As you drive, air rushes through them and makes that high-pitched whistle noise. Yeah. Yeah. I, d I didn't want to say this because my mum will be listening, but I almost hit a kangaroo on the way home from her place the other night, and it was terrifying, so I might buy some of these whistles and test them. Um, uh, 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 but Eleanor, you, you're going to get into the scientific method there. We could discuss <laughs> how you could divide. I want to find out if anybody has actually done any 
vigorous research on these because one thing I did find in the book and we did run this in an Ask Fuzzy are those ultrasonic mosquito and uh, insect pest repellents mm. and uh, rats and mice and my friend um, Martin Robinson who's the or was the naturalist at the Australian Museum he said <laughs> they put some cockroaches in a tank with one of these things and the cockroaches laid eggs on them <laughs> <laughs> So not super afraid of it then? No. Uh, today's Ask Fuzzy is about why men have trouble wrapping presents. <laughs> uh, I had a bit of fun with that one, but they, believe it or not, there is actually some science. I don't have time to go into it more now. Next week, we've got your column, Phil, on the passenger, the passenger pigeon. So people can learn a lot more about the, 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 the poor old passenger pigeon. And head out to the National Dinosaur Museum. For the extinction event. <laughs> uh, yep, that's plenty going on there. Bring your kids. And what, what can they do quickly? Uh, yeah, we've got guided tours, 11, 12, 2 and 3. And we've got the extinction question sheet. And we've just released a new audio tour. So people can come up and get a little audio thing that they can walk around and, and uh, just a magic wand and wander against an exhibit and listen to information about that exhibit. Oh, we, we, we've got to go do a live show from the National Dinosaur Museum. That's it. Thank you, Eleanor. That's it from me. Catch us later. Bye now.